Well, good morning, everyone. Yes, uh, like Lauren mentioned, um, my name's Paul, so I take care of groups and family ministry here at um, Mission Gathering, and uh, it's something I really enjoy, and I'm, I'm not alone here. I've got my homeboy, Marcus, back on the slides, so he is uh, representing, and uh, he's doing a fantastic job, and uh, I do want to encourage you, the 26th of January is going to be our group's sign-up weekend, and I do think it's Probably the most important thing you can do if you want to grow spiritually is you can't do it alone. So getting involved in a group, signing up for a group will be really important. Um, I hope everybody survived the holidays. I don't know. It was, it's kind of a rough, it's a rough season. Um, I've experienced a little bit just because I've got two birthdays in my family. It happens in December and all of the Christmas stuff and New Year's. My, my birthday happens to be on New Year's. Um, so it's pretty crazy. I feel like I go underwater and we don't get out until January. But um, we take a trip, my family does, to Dodge City, Kansas um, for Christmas, where my wife's family is from. And so we take about like seven hours in the car. And when we get a chance, we like to listen to podcasts. And my favorite podcast recently is all about Dolly Parton. I had no idea. There was just kind of this woman that I sort of knew, but, you know, not really and she was telling me a story of the country I sort of knew, but not really. And this is sort of the, the beautiful thing that happens in when we're driving in the car and we get exposed to these different stories that reveal to us sort of a reality that we weren't aware of previously. But then one thing that we do when we're in Dodge City, there's this antique store there, and um, we go digging through treasures, you know, one day. And I was looking for vinyl. I'm kind of getting into vinyl. I haven't found a lot of vinyl, and I'm looking for, I don't know, old country music. I don't know why now. I was never really into country music before, but I've started going, okay, maybe they've got some Dolly Parton back there, you know, because I was looking for something that maybe have, has been overlooked, something that kind of feels like mine, you know, that I never knew about before. Um, but it was old, but it felt new. That's kind of what I was searching for. And so this is the series that we're doing called Unheard Of. And we're kind of pulling apart the Christmas narrative. And we're saying, is there anything like that here? Is there maybe a character in there that we sort of knew, but not really, in order to find something that was really old, but kind of new to us, that we realized was always ours to begin with? And so today we're going to be looking at a familiar character to maybe some of us, but maybe didn't quite know enough about. His name is Herod, Herod I, Herod the Great. He was the king uh, in Judea at the time of Jesus' birth. Uh, and that's what we're going to be uh, focusing on today. We're going to kind of wonder, what's his story about? How can we understand his story? And how is that important to us today? Uh, so here's the thing about Herod. Here's a little bit of a, a history lesson. Uh, Herod grew up with some pretty wealthy parents. Um, they had both converted to Judaism uh, at, uh, at the time, and uh, the, Herod's dad was pretty close with Julius Caesar at the time, so he'd kind of gained some favor. And uh, Herod, Herod, his father, Herod Antipas was his name, uh, had sort of the charge of an area of Israel called Judea. And then what, what he did was when Herod the Great, his son, 
was about 25 years old, he decided to split up the kingdom between Herod and his brother uh, and his cousin uh, Antigonus. But uh, as it as it goes with uh, scripture, it kind of sometimes feels a little bit like uh, an episode of Game of Thrones where everybody is like violent and just trying to take power. And that was the case with Herod. So his cousin Antigonus kicks him out of Judea and Herod escapes with his life uh, all the way back to Rome. And he, I, I kind of picture the scene a little bit like this guy who's just gotten whooped and he's He's kind of complaining to the big boss. He's like, well, you know, I was there. I was going to do the job, but they were bigger than me. And what am I going to do about it? And Caesar is like, okay, we're going we're gonna to fix this. You're going to go back with my army. So Herod shows up with a brand new shiny gun, and he kicks Antigonus out, and he takes over Judea, and he comes back. And the way he does it is really interesting. Uh, he... Uh, he was sort of marginally Jewish. The family was sort of culturally Jewish. And the rest of the country kind of knew that. But So he went on this sort of like PR mission to do all of the best Jewish things. He goes and uh, he was actually married. And so he divorces his wife and kicks his son out. <laughs> he was like, I'm marrying a nice Jewish girl. And so he, he actually marries the cousin, no, the daughter of his cousin that he just kicked out. So that was a pretty cool move. Um, and uh, so he divorces his wife, banishes his son, marries his niece, marries the right family, marries it in right, the right church with the right guest list. Um, and not only that, he starts to pay for the biggest renovation of the church in the history of the nation. Not only that, not only does he... It was called the temple, but not only did he fix the biggest church, he did the whole area, the temple mound, and he creates this huge wall, course, he builds this wall, he builds this fortress at Masada to protect the country from terrorists, he builds a coliseum called the Herodium, he increases uh, commerce and trade, he builds new ports, so the economy is booming and he creates jobs. So Herod is actually one of the most successful Jewish kings in history. And this is where we pick up the story in Matthew. Um, I'm going to start us in verse 2 to give us some context. So here's what it says. It says, Matthew 2, verse 2, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all of the people's chief priests and the teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Okay, so we, for the most part, we're pretty familiar with the Christmas story, and we kind of know who Herod is. Um, he's the villain, right? He's the villain of the story. Um, but I want to pause here, and I want to do something different a little bit with, with Herod. Um, 
And if I'm doing my job well today, I hope that everybody is just slightly uncomfortable at what we learn and a little bit comforted at the same time. See, I want us to have a little compassion for Herod. Because, uh, well, I love stories and I hate flat characters. Uh, I think everybody's complicated. Everybody has complicated motives and everybody's a little bit good and bad. That's just humans. See, Herod didn't get to choose how he was born. He was born with power by blood. From his first breath, he had a lot of expectations resting on his shoulders. And if you think about the world at this time, it was pretty violent. It was a brutal place. The wealthy had the power. It was all concentrated in one place, very few. Uh, scarcity was the prevailing mindset of the world. And the wealthier, the wealthier you were, the, the more dangerous your life became because you lived with a target on your back. And uh, so the more you would amass, the more dangerous people would want to kill you. Um, so if you didn't protect and grow what you had, it would be taken from you. It will be taken from you by another. And that's kind of the, the paradox of, of the leadership that he had to deal with. He had this huge burden of leadership just because of the family that he grew up in. At a very young age, and he had to figure out how to do a lot of this stuff. So he had very few allies. Even the people in his family didn't really want him to succeed. His cousin tries to kill him and take a piece of the pie. But he's incredibly creative and determined and focused on creating this thriving kingdom in his part of the world. Sure, he lived his life in fear, but he overcame and accomplished massive things. See, Herod didn't do, do small. Herod did big. Herod did big things. So what do you do when you spent your whole life trying to protect your family, trying to protect your life, trying to protect that little thing that you've been growing, trying to protect your inheritance, and somebody comes along and says that there's another king or queen there. That there is someone who's better than you, and you're sitting in their seat. I think Herod does what a lot of us would do in his place. When something threatens our lifestyle, when something threatens um, our safety, we think of a strategy to minimize the danger, right? That's what we do. We buy security systems, we, you know, buy, buy our phones, the cars that we buy. They're, they're all strategies to, to help protect us and keep, preserve our lifestyle. And where does this danger come from? Well, it's really interesting. It doesn't come from inside. It doesn't come from, like, the people inside his kingdom. It's outsiders. And it, it, often we call them uh, kings, three kings, the, but they're not really kings. They're actually like really well-funded scientists is what the, the Magi were. And uh, they study the stars. And so what their purpose was is they, they came to effectively tell Herod, who was king of the Jews, there is a different king of the Jews, and we've come to worship him and not you. And what's fascinating is in the scripture it says, 
Herod was disturbed and all of Jerusalem with him. Because <laughs> somebody with that much power, somebody with that much influence, you know, casts a big shadow. So it's not just him that starts to feel the pressure. It's like everybody goes, okay, what is he going to do now? And this is effectively, they're calling for the end of his reign. So like Herod, you know, most of the power I have comes from blood. Um, I'm half Caucasian. I'm, I, I, I pretty much read white everywhere I go. Uh, my parents were up in middle class. I grew up in Greeley, a white suburb in, in Colorado. Yeah. Had a car when I was 16. Um, had enough money. To, they had enough money to send me to college. I finished my college. Uh, undergraduate. Um, graduated. I got a job pretty easily. Uh, also part of the right religion, which I was born into, and uh, I was really good at it. Um, today, I, I earn, I'm part of the, the 1% of, in the world of top, like if you earn $32,000 a year, you're in the 1% of income earners in the world. So I'm, I'm up there. That's pretty good. Um, according to the economist Edward Wolf. The Federal Reserve data suggests that the top 1% of American households claim more wealth than the entire bottom 90% of common household incomes combined. Yeah, right? It's a big deal. Now, in your life, do you feel that way? No. <laughs> I struggle a little bit, I'll be honest. Um, so I, but, I, but I still, I rent a house, I have two cars. My wife and I are both college grads, and I was born into it, and my power came to me by blood, but I had to work to keep it, and I had to protect it, and I had to grow it, because if I didn't, it would be taken from me, and it's not wrong. I want you to understand, first of all, it's not wrong. It's actually good. The scripture has a lot to say about the importance of doing good work and making good investments and thinking abundantly. So that's important. But my point is that power changes you. Power changes the way you think about the world. That makes you assume things about reality that might not be true outside of your little world. I mean, how many times have you thought, you know, middle of the day, and you think, Oh, man, I'm starving. I haven't eaten since breakfast. Wait, starving? <laughs> what are we talking about? You rarely in America, is it possible for you to go one day without a meal? Even without having a house, even without having money. There are 13 soup kitchens in the Denver metro area that you can get a meal at at any given time. You can eat 13 times <laughs> and not have any money. Um, the thing is, you're really not aware of your power until it is tested. And when I heard of a different experience of my same America, the one I sort of knew, but not really, from my friends who are gracious enough to let me know what their experience of being, being America was. Say, for example, my African-American friends who were telling me what their experience of being black in America was. And they give me this news of another kingdom. And my power was threatened. 
when I started talking to my female friends in ministry and the stories of their experience of the church that I knew. That was a story of a kingdom that was unexpected and threatened my power. When I heard from my queer friends their stories of gender and sexuality, I heard of another kingdom and my power was threatened. Of course, at first, I would say something like, well, that's not normal. Like My experience is normal. That's what power does. Power assumes that our experience is normal. Yet here was a story that made me question whether I really knew which kingdom I was a part of. For those of you who maybe have seen The Man in the High Castle, I know Lauren has mentioned it. We were kind of geeks about that show on Amazon. Um, I was John Smith, and I realized there was an alternate universe out there and where another side wins, and I might have to follow and not lead. See, when you're faced with the news of a threatening kingdom, another kingdom, I, I think you really only have three options, okay? And I will say these three options are we, we can either fight, flight, or follow. That's what we do. We either fight, we flight, or follow. So let's take a look at the first one, fight. As the story continues in Matthew, we learn about Herod, what he chooses. We know. He pretends to be an ally, telling the wise men, I want to go worship him too. Can you send me the address? <laughs> and the wise men have a dream that warns them not to do that, so uh, they ghost him. And when Herod finds out what happens, he takes it pretty well. Yeah. Um, here's what it says in Scripture. It says, when Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem under two years and its vicinity who were two years old and under oath. Oh, says that. I was jumping ahead. In accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. See, Herod chose to double down and fight. See, the event is traditionally known as the murder of innocence. It's, it's debated by scholars whether it actually happened, but we know from several biblical scholars and extra-biblical accounts that this would definitely not be out of character for Herod. Um, see, history shows that he was incredibly paranoid at losing his power. So he was routinely assassinating rivals. Um, there was several uprising against him that he crushed violently. He had a hired a large squad of mercenaries to be his own secret police. And he actually killed two of his own sons because he was afraid that they were going to steal power from him. Um, so much so that he became famous and Caesar actually said, hey, it's better to be one of, uh, one of Herod's pigs than it is to be one of Herod's sons. Which was obviously a, a, a very not-so-veiled Slap in the face of the people, the, the Jewish people. And before he died, he was so worried that people weren't going to mourn him that he ordered a large number of uh, important men into Jericho. And he ordered that they be killed at the same time as he died so that people would, he would finally get the kind of mourning he, had, he would always hoped for. Thankfully, they didn't do that. <laughs> they were like, Dad is crazy. Um, we're not going to do that. 
But does that give you a picture into what it looks like to fight for power at all costs? He died a horribly painful death. It later was called Herod's evil, and the pain was so bad, he tried to commit suicide three times. Herod chose to fight to the bitter end to keep his power. Now, I'm pretty sure none of us have gone to those extremes. But um, you may have had some experience where you have resisted and fought for what is yours. Maybe it come in the form of a place where you thought you were safe. Um, I mean, not only you were the ones fighting, but sometimes you were the person who you felt like you had a safe place and somebody was fighting to keep their kingdom intact. Maybe you thought it was safe to share your secret identity and they felt afraid and doubled down on their family tradition. Or they doubled down on their religion. Maybe you've had doubts and questions about your faith like I did and your faith community shut that down because it created too much of a disruption. Maybe your political perspective changed and your family saw it as a betrayal and they sharpened their knives. But they weren't the only people with the weapons. See, some crisis happens that divides you maybe at work, or with a business partner, or a co-worker. Maybe your spouse pushes your buttons for the last time, and your mind goes to lawyers, guns, and money. You're thinking, how is this? Okay, this is going to end. I'm going to win. There's going to be a winner and loser. I'm going to be the winner. See, we're all good fighters when it comes to something that gets in between us and safety and happiness. Is this your kind of base layer? Is this where you instinctually go when something approaches you that's another kingdom that threatens your power? Or is it flight? Maybe you go into flight mode, um, which is kind of my response, actually, uh, I'm in, I don't know if any of you are familiar with the, the Enneagram. It's kind of a personality typing system. That I, I, it's, a, it's fantastic if you ever get into a chance to learn about it. Um, in, that, in that sort of thing, I, uh, I'm known as the, the nine, which is a peacemaker. So I strive for collaboration, peace, and unity. The dark, seedy underbelly of that is that I can appease and I can deny and I can repress. And uh, my problem is it's far too easy for me to go to sleep on my anger. And I don't sometimes connect with the healthy part of my ego that needs to move forward. And then when I wake up, it's to a bunch of destruction due to my neglect. See, Herod doesn't happen in a vacuum. He's a part of a city and Rome was not building a day, forgive the pun, but it depended on a lot of people that were enabling a kind of behavior like that. Thousands of people trapped in fear, addicted to their own self-interest, too tired or distracted to see beyond themselves the systems of oppression that they silently built in their sleep. And when they woke up, they were angry for sure. I mean, record shows that Herod was not popular by any stretch, but it was too late for anger. They were overwhelmed by the problem and paralyzed by the complexity of their political landscape. 
Of course, that's nothing like our current problems, right? Those are ancient problems. We've evolved past that, right? None of us are overwhelmed or distracted. None of us have benefited indirectly from the success of a country that has achieved greatness on the backs of oppression around the world. Woo! Oh, boy. None of us have the smoldering pile of chaos in our own families that plague us. None of us resist the invitation to become a citizen in a new kingdom. Why? Because it costs too much. Hope is exhausting. Love is too painful. It requires the end of our Kingdom, the end of our bookkeeping of right and wrong, the end of our walls. So flight is a pretty attractive response to the presence of a new and better kingdom. Which leads me to the final and I believe the inevitable response to a better kingdom. See, maybe like me, you have been secretly hoping for the end of your been secretly hoping for the end of your kingdom. Perhaps you realized I made a mistake. What I thought was freedom was a trap. And now I'm overwhelmed and I'm embarrassed and I feel helpless to change anything. And perhaps you're tired of fighting. Maybe you're tired of running. Maybe you're daring to believe that the God that you've always hoped for is the God that exists. Maybe it might not surprise you that there was more than one king of the Jews. And then Herod was not the only one. And in fact, when he was killed, when, when he killed all of the firstborn in Judea, he was in fact aiming to kill only one. Only one child. The child of a teenage girl and a backcountry day laborer who would overthrow every empire that existed after him. The title was also given to this king of the Jews by Caesar. It was a title that was displayed on the top of his cross as he was tortured and crucified. His name was Jesus Bar-Joseph, which means from Joseph, from Nazareth, from Nazareth is where Joseph was from. He actually took the place of another criminal, a lesser-known Jesus. His first name was Jesus, but his last name was Barabbas. So the Jesus from Joseph took the place of Jesus Barabbas, and Jesus Barabbas was a terrorist. He was well-known and violent, but he was let go. And that day, he demonstrated his power Jesus, by mocking the absurd violence of the empire, stealing the fear and power from death and starting a revolution of love that changed the world forever. And with this act, Scripture says he became the firstborn from the dead, the map of resurrection. His kingdom offered an escape from the endless cycle of violence by making every enemy he destroyed the dividing wall of hostility and made peace between God and people. 
He made everything one. He made us all us. Know them, know us, just us. No separation even between God and people. He would become, he would even become us with us. And that kind of act means the end of our separate kingdoms. And the only question that exists is, is this the kind of kingdom you want? Do you want this kind of kingdom? I don't really have any specific, like, applications for you. I do want to offer these questions. Because I trust that the Holy Spirit is going to begin to start poking, prodding at you, and going like, oh, okay, if this is true, if this is the kind of kingdom that exists, then I wonder what that means about this next decision that I have to make. How does that impact that? I don't want to presume to know the specifics of your life, um, but I just want to know, is this the kind of kingdom you want? So I'm going to leave you with a picture here. Um, one of my new heroes is a guy, his name is Greg Boyle. He's a Catholic priest, and he started a company out in LA called Homeboy Industries. So what Homeboy Industries does is it basically takes uh, gang members, rival gang members, and it puts them to work. It gives them, they start baking together in, a, in uh, they have like tattoo removal. Um, there's a bakery. There's clothing line. It's amazing. Their, their tagline is nothing stops a bullet more than a job, uh, which is a beautiful thing. He's, he's a beautiful man. Um, and I might be cheating a little bit, but I'm going to show you a video of, of uh, Father Greg, uh, his friend, his uh Closest friends call him G-Dog. He strives to help see everyone uh, see their kinship, their inherent kinship. So this is a piece of his TED Talk that shows what I think this kingdom looks like. Let's go ahead. People and... always ask me about enemies who work together to make the enemies work. The enemy will come in and say, I'm ready, I'm ready. And I'll say, okay, I have an opening in the bakery, but you have to work with X, Y, and Z. And I rattle off the names of rivals. They always say the same thing. They always say, uh, I'll work with them, but I'm not going to talk to them. But, you know, it used to bother me in the early days, but you know, the truth is, human beings can't demonize people they know. It's hard to explain that. So I had a homie named uh, Youngster, a little tiny guy. Everybody called him Youngster. And I thought he was ready, so I bring him into the homeboy uh, silkscreen factory, and I introduce him to all his 30 co-workers. That's our biggest business huge factory. And I watch him as he shakes hands with everybody, looking them in the eyes, even enemies, until he gets to the last guy, a guy everybody called Puppet. And Puppet seems to be avoiding this encounter altogether. And when Puppet and Youngster are in each other's vicinity, they kind of mumble something. They stare at their shoes. They don't shake hands. Well, I know they're enemies, but he just finished shaking hands with other enemies. I discover later that this is uh, a hatred that's quite personal and deep beyond which neither of them think they can get past. So I sense that at the moment, and I say, hey, if you guys can't hang working together, let me know. I've got a bunch of people who want this job. And they say nothing. Six months later, Puppet is walking to a corner store not far from his home and buys something. And, but on the way home, he kind of takes a detour, a shortcut, cuts into an alley. Suddenly, 
He's surrounded by 10 members of a rival gang, 10 against one. They beat him badly. He falls to the ground. While he's lying on the ground, they will not stop kicking his head until he's lying there lifeless. Somebody finds his body, takes him to White Memorial Hospital, where he's declared effectively brain dead. So it's policy there to keep you connected to machines for 48 hours so the doctors can get two days of a flat read, then they sign the death certificate. This allowed family and friends to gather. I was in St. Louis University giving a talk. I flew home. I've seen a lot of horrible things in my life but nothing could compare to the sight of this young man with his head swollen many, many times its size. It was just horrifying. You could barely train your eyes on him. So at the end of the 48-hour period, I gave him a blessing. I anointed his forehead with oil. He disconnected. And a week later, I buried him. But in the first 24 hours, I'm alone in my office. It's 8.30 at night. My phone rings, and it's young Hey, he says, that's messed up about what happened to Puppet. Yeah, it is. And then with a certain kind of eagerness, even, he says, is there anything I can do? Can I give him my blood? And we both fall silent under the weight of it. Until finally, he breaks the silence, choking back his tears, and he says with great deliberation, he was not my enemy. He was my friend. We worked together. Now, can I say that always happens at Homeboy Industries? Yeah. Any exceptions? No. And it shouldn't surprise us that God's own dream come true for us, that we be one. It just happens our own deepest longings for ourselves. Our own deepest longing for ourselves. This is what the kingdom looks like. Instead of trying to protect our blood, we look for ways to give it. In the bond of kinship with our enemies, we discover something that is very old, new to us, but something that was always ours. Hey, thanks for tuning in with us this week. You can check back for new messages each Tuesday. If you're in the Denver area, come see us this Sunday. You can find out more about our service times as well as the mission and vision of M.G. Thornton at mgthornton.org. That's M-G-T-H-O-R-N-T-O-N dot O-R-G. See you next week.